We will come to the time now in our service. We're going to look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why this matters at all, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 739, this brown Bible. Turn there with me so we can follow along together. As you're turning there, Luke 14, verse 12, just to give you a bit of context and understanding, Jesus here is at the house of a prominent Pharisee we learn at the beginning of the chapter. And throughout this chapter, he's talking a lot about invitations, all kinds of different invitations and what that looks like in different scenarios. Uh, Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. When you, if you found that, would you stand with me? We'll read this passage together. So we're going to kind of cut in midway through Jesus' conversation with these Pharisees, beginning at verse 12. Luke writes this. Then Jesus said to his host, this is that prominent Pharisee, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. Commentators tell us Jesus isn't saying don't ever invite them. He means don't always, don't continually just invite these people. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And when one of those at the table uh, with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to Tell those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. First one said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've only, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. <clears throat> the servant came back and reported this to the master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in. Compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited we'll get a taste of my banquet. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let me pray for us once more. Just ask God's blessing now on his word as we look at this next parable that we're going to see this morning. Spirit of God, I ask you to come now uh, and meet with us as we look at your word. Uh, we believe that centuries ago you inspired men to write down these words. And so while this is a, uh, an ancient book, with ancient words, it also has something that will continue to speak to us even now because your spirit continues to live and you can continue to speak through these words to us. I'm believing that each person here that you drew this morning on a July 1st, uh, you, you had a purpose in drawing each one of us here. And I believe that just as you've worked in my heart this week as I've studied, you're going to work in each one of our hearts today as we look at this. You tell us in your word, when you send it out, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. 
Well, having kids, that's one thing. But having daughters in particular, some of you know this, it, let's just say, has afforded me certain opportunities to be exposed to all kinds of things that I might otherwise never have been exposed to. Uh, One of those things would be, over the years, coming to know the names and the stories of every single Disney princess that is. Like, I might have known some of them. I like Disney, but I know all of them. I know all the stories behind them. That's just not something that would have been on my to-do list if I didn't have daughters. I, I wouldn't have cared about that. But in fairness, I mean, I make it sound like it's a struggle. In fairness, if you can get over the fact that in basically every one of these stories, victory or success comes about by that princess uh, ignoring, uh, uh, circumventing, just disregarding her parents' rules and instructions, if you can just get over that, the stories themselves, they're, they're pretty entertaining. They're pretty good. Uh, one of the ones that I, my, my favorite ones that I think is one of the better ones is the story of Princess Belle. And Beauty and the Beast. Maybe you have seen this story. You know this movie. Now, as with many of the Disney movies, the Disney princess movies, the story is not original to Disney. It's a story that actually came from the 18th century, written by a French author, Jean-Marie Le Prince. If you know the way the story begins, though, it starts out with this cold, a proud prince. And this haggard old woman comes to his door, knocking on the door at a dark and stormy night, and she says, would you give me shelter from the storm? And in exchange, she offers him this single rose. Now this prince is cold and proud, and he's like, are you kidding me? Dismisses her. Get away, I'm not, I'm not going to take you in. So he dismisses her, but she extends the invitation to him again to take part in this exchange, reminding him not to be fooled by appearances. But when The prince rejects her invitation a second time. Her appearance suddenly transforms, right? The the raggedy clothes fall off. She transforms to reveal that she's actually a beautiful enchantress, which to my mind, that just means basically she transforms to look like my wife. She's just standing there. "Ah." And the prince, he's now like feeling like an idiot. He's like, no, okay, I didn't didn't know. But now she's seen that there's no love in his heart. And so she transforms him into this beast, until he can learn to love another and earn their love in return. You know, just, this is the, the way the story begins, and then whatever, cue the music, cue the beautiful princess, uh, 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 cue the relational angst, um, cute marketable sidekicks, and you got yourself a Disney movie. Great. But what's interesting about that opening scene in particular, as it relates to our passage here in Luke 14, is how it illustrates the way that pride can cloud our judgment when it comes to how we respond to an invitation. Particularly, an invitation that seems common at first, but actually has great value. We are continuing this morning in this series we began a few weeks ago, looking at uh, the various stories and parables that Jesus told, called Stories of the Kingdom. Stories about the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated when he first came to earth, and teaching us through these stories about what is valued in the kingdom as well as the kind of things that are despised there. And when we look at Jesus' story that he tells here in Luke 14, often called the parable of the great banquet or the parable of the wedding banquet, I think what we see pretty clearly is that what is valued and what gains us access into or entry into God's kingdom is the humble acceptance of his invitation. 
And what is despised in God's kingdom and what denies us entry there is the prideful, presumptuous rejection of that invitation. And I think for you and I this morning, it's important we look really closely at what Jesus has to show us here in this story. Because aside from warning us not to refuse the invitation outright, I mean, that's certainly there. But aside from that, there seems to be an even deeper warning underneath that warning that we could also miss God's invitation to us by presumptuously believing we already have this access to God's banquet that we don't actually possess. So in order to stand how Jesus wants to guard us against that kind of prideful rejection of his simple invitation, I want to look at our passage this morning in just three ways. We're going to talk about the what of God's invitation, the when of God's invitation, and then finally, the who of God's invitation. The what, the when, the who of God's invitation. All right, so if you closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to that passage in Luke 14? Follow along with me as we look at this next story of the kingdom. So let's look first of all at the what of the kingdom. The what of the kingdom, and I think it's essential that we begin by looking here, because before we can talk about uh, acceptance or rejection of an invitation, I'd say it's probably pretty important that we understand what it is that we're being invited to. What's the invitation to? And the language that Jesus uses to describe this kingdom of God, he's saying this is what the kingdom of God is like, that he's inviting us all to. We see this language throughout this parable. We see it particularly in verse 16. Look there with me. Jesus says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. I don't know how that strikes you. Maybe because, maybe a banquet isn't a word we use very often in our common everyday speech anymore. But I also don't know how that strikes you, because even if you grew up in church all your life, I mean, a banquet? Really? Like, is that, 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 that's not the picture that comes to mind for most of us when we think about the kingdom of God, is it? For a lot of us, when we grew up thinking about some future coming kingdom of God, maybe you'd describe that as heaven, we imagine something very different. We think like uh, sitting on clouds in robes, playing harps, uh, eating bagels with Philadelphia cream cheese or something like that. Maybe you, you, a lot of us, this is what I grew up thinking, we think that this coming kingdom, it's going to be just this endless, never-ending church service where there's going to be sermons that are even longer than mine, and we're going to sing all 300 verses of Just As I Am. We think that this is what's coming. And if I can just be really honest with you, if that's your idea of what the kingdom is, and, I, and I'll confess to you, this was my idea of what the kingdom was too for years, if that's your idea of what the kingdom of God is like, it's, it's no wonder. It's no wonder you find it so hard to loosen the grip of your hands off the things of this world and seek God's kingdom above. It's no wonder you struggle to pray, God, bring your kingdom on earth like it is in heaven. It's no wonder we, we see sin, brokenness, injustice in the world, and we struggle to have any hope for anything better. Why? Because that kingdom sounds boring. It sounds powerless. It sounds sounds super lame. I'm saying this as a pastor. An endless church service sounds super lame. 
And I know, I know there's some people in here who might think, you know what? I would love a, a week-long hymn sing. That would be great if we could just sing hymns for a week. And, and, but even then, even those people, you probably would say, yeah, but, hey, but forever? We, we would just do that forever? It doesn't sound good at all. It doesn't sound like something we would actually want and seek at all. And so it's no wonder we struggle that way. And what Jesus wants us to know here through this parable is that the kingdom of God is a banquet. Like think, whatever you can picture in your mind, of like that, that huge table like you see in some kind of Lord of the Rings, some kind of a, a, a old huge banquet, people feasting, celebrating. He's saying it's, it's a massive party. The kingdom of God is, is a lavish feast. He's trying to say, this is something you, you want to be a part of this. I, I just came up with this this morning, so if this analogy just falls flat on its face, it's fine. I don't, I don't care. Think about it. When you were a kid, the idea of girls and sex, that just sounds like, oh, why would I want that? That sounds lame. Ugh. But then as you hit puberty, boom, all of a sudden it's like, well, actually, that, does, that sounds pretty good. Jesus is trying to change our mind about the kingdom from something that sounds gross, that sounds like, oh, I don't know, to all of a sudden something that we're like, no, I want that, I long for that. He's showing us a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is like. He says it's a banquet, it's a massive party. Just think about the place where you hear uh, uh, the word banquet even anymore now. What you, most times we hear it in the context of a wedding, right? Think, if those of you who were here for Forest and Melody's uh, wedding, we went to this big reception, Italian Cultural Center. Whoa, huge room, people partying, we're dancing, there's food. It's a great time. That's a celebration. That's the kind of idea of Jesus saying the kingdom of God is like that. It's something you want to be a part of. I mean, and look, a wedding celebration, look at the life and ministry of Jesus recorded for us in the Gospels. As the king comes to inaugurate his kingdom on earth, and tell me if you know, what's the very first public miracle that Jesus performs in order to just say, both, both to show that he's God and to demonstrate what the inbreaking of the kingdom looks like as it's coming to earth? What does he do? Do you remember? He comes to a massive wedding celebration that's about to die because the bridegroom didn't order enough wine, and he creates from water the choicest of wine to keep the party going all night. That's the first miracle Jesus performs. To say, this is what my kingdom is going to be about. What, what does that tell us? What, that Jesus wants people to get plastered at wedding celebration, make a fool of yourself at the dance floor? No. It tells us that the kingdom of God is the most epic wedding celebration you can imagine. And in God's kingdom, that celebration goes on forever. It doesn't come to an end. He's going to keep the party going forever. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That, can we be honest at this point? That is not the picture most of us have about the kingdom of God. We don't think of it that way. And Jesus is trying to change our minds about that here. Uh, pastor and author Tim Keller says it this way. If you scratch your head over the idea that Jesus would use his miracles to throw great parties, you don't know what he's about. You don't know what he's about. And think about it. If you read the description of the end of the story... All the way at the end of our Bible, the book of Revelation, we see a future picture of what the fullness of the kingdom of God looks like 
the end of all time, the end of human history itself concludes with what? A wedding banquet. A wedding banquet with Jesus as the bridegroom, his church as the bride, and a celebration in God's kingdom fully come that now goes on forever. And the angel that's taking John around as he's showing him what this future fullness of God's kingdom looks like says, write this down, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Why does Jesus want to know us? Why does he want us to know that about his kingdom? That it's a banquet. Why is he so concerned that this would be the image that comes to mind instead of uh, some endless church service or sitting on clouds? Why does he want us to know that? Because he doesn't want you to miss out on the banquet he's inviting you to. He doesn't want you to miss out and he wants you to know clearly in your mind a picture of what this kingdom is actually like. He wants you to know what you'll actually be missing if you're kind of hemming and hawing about whether or not you want to send regrets to this invitation. He's saying, you, you, you don't want to miss out on this one. He wants the kingdom of God to be something your heart aches for. Something that you, you pursue with every ounce of energy you have. Something that you would seek above all other things in your life. And because when you truly understand what the kingdom is, what it is, that future picture that he's trying to say what it's actually like, all of a sudden, yeah, well, we're still grateful for life and the pleasures we enjoy here. Maybe now those things, we, we are able to loosen our hands on the things of this world a bit more easily. Or maybe they lose their grip on us. I'm not sure which it is. It tends to alternate. We can loosen our hands from the things of this world and, and reach a bit more for the future now because we see the kingdom as something that we'd actually want. We'd actually want to be a part of that. And on top of that, Although we may still experience suffering in this life, we may still experience hardship, understanding what the kingdom is truly like allows us to hold on to an expectant hope, even in the midst of those struggles, because we see a beautiful, attractive picture of what the future coming kingdom will be. Okay. So that's the what of God's invitation. That's a pretty big what. I hope already that your mind has been a bit shifted as far as thinking of God's kingdom differently as something I actually would want to be part of that. We'll get into this more as we go, but that's the, the what of God's kingdom. The next thing we'll see here is the when of God's invitation. The when of God's invitation. Now, like with so many things in life, timing. Timing is incredibly important, right? When, when someone comes to me in the morning and wants to offer me something that they need help with, something challenging perhaps, if they ask me before I've had my morning coffee, timing of that is going to be not good for you. You're going to be much more likely to get a favorable answer if you ask me after that time, right? Timing, it's important. Uh, uh, when you're putting on a big meal for someone, timing of how you put on the different things in the meal, incredibly important, right? You can't just put on the roast and put on the broccoli to steam at the same time. You can't do that because you're going to either get like a, a soup that you dish out like this that used to be broccoli, or eating that roast is going to look like something out of a National Geographic special on lions in the Serengeti. You, you, you need to put them on at different times, and the timing of how you do it, important. In fact, there's been something of a running debate in my house uh, for years now about the timing of when you call someone down for dinner. My standard practice is I say, okay, about five to ten minutes before everything's ready, I call you down. I'm like, come down, come sit up. But, fair enough, 
On the other side of that, sitting up at the table when there's nothing there yet, <laughs> there's no food on the table, nothing's been plated, can bring about frustration for people. People can be saying, you know, uh, thanks for calling me, thanks for making dinner. I, I probably could have finished what I was working on, probably could have finished that book I was reading, finished that worksheet or whatever it was, if dinner was actually ready when you called me. Usually the timing of those comments isn't good either, but I mention all that because now that we've established the what of God's invitation, what it is he's inviting us to, this, this banquet, this huge banquet, what we see next is the when, the timing of when Jesus invites us to the banquet, which is incredibly significant to our understanding of what Jesus is saying in this parable. Look with me there. We read it in verse 17. Jesus says, At the time of the, of the banquet... He, this is the one who's hosting it, he sent his servant out to tell those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. So when does Jesus invite us to the banquet? When everything is ready. When everything is ready. Now, it's important to establish, first of all, we, we might not know what's going on here. In a first century context, this double invitation wasn't weird. It was what it was expected. This is how you did it. Now, you know, today, our kids, you know, they'll write up a little birthday invitation, send it off. You'll send out an evite to somebody, and that's it, right? You're invited. Hope you show up when that thing's happening. Not so here. In, in Jesus' day, what would happen is you invited your guests to a banquet. You invited them to a wedding, to a party, whatever you were doing, and then you sent out another invitation once everything was ready. You would send out this invitation that would say, hey, hey now it's time to start coming. Everything's set up. So that's why it's not weird that in verse 16, we read about that he invites all these guests, and then in verse 17, he's sending out another invitation. That wasn't weird in this context for Je- in Jesus' day. The thing that's also important to see is that because there's these two invitations, none of the invited guests would have been surprised by this second invitation. They would have already, if you could just call it RSVP, and they would have said, yeah, I'm coming. So now this second invitation is just be like, okay, now come. Now it's ready. And we need to highlight that specifically because this, in large part, is what makes the responses of these first invited guests so strange and also so insulting. Look at the way they responded when the second messenger comes, starting in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. First said, I've just bought a field, I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. Now, every commentator that I read agreed here. Well beyond the insult to the master of this banquet that it would have been to accept his first invitation and then refuse the second invitation, even just beyond the insult of that, every commentator I read agreed. These are just the lamest, worst excuses possible. They're just ridiculous. R.C. Sproul, for instance, notes, the excuses are transparently dishonest. No one buys a field or oxen without prior inspection. And if they did, there was no hurry. The field and the oxen would be there tomorrow. And then, what, like that third guy there, I just got married so I can't come? I don't even what going on. I don't, I don't know what's going on in that guy's mind. Because, uh, uh, sure, there, there was an uh, Old Testament law that exempted newly married men from being involved in military service for one year. But, I mean, what, are we going to say that, like, a, a banquet and a battle, those are the same thing? You're going to battle me for those chicken wings? That's not, you're not exempt. None of these excuses make sense. They're not valid. 
Now, it would be easy to kind of just jump to the conclusion that the reason for these ridiculous excuses is also transparent. Namely, they just, these people actually just hated the master of the banquet and didn't want to come. So they're giving all these kinds of, you know, I had to wash my hair tonight kind of excuses because they just don't want to come. That's, that's one option. I'm not saying that's not the reason they give these excuses. Maybe it is. But it got me thinking, while it's possible, it's possible that they just don't want to come to the banquet, what if another reasonable explanation for these lame excuses is that they actually do? They really do want to come to the banquet, but they feel resentful and confused by the fact that everything's being prepared for them already, that they can't contribute to the greatness of the banquet. Let me show you what I mean. We know that accepting the invitation to the banquet, Jesus' parable is meant to be parallel to things, to, to teach us about things, and we can show how this thing means this thing in a parable. We know that accepting the invitation to the banquet in Jesus' parable is equivalent to salvation. It's equivalent to entering into God's kingdom. And if you didn't know, now you do. That's what this is equivalent to. We also know that when this second messenger is sent out, it's to invite the guests to let them know that now everything's ready. It's all being prepared. It's all being taken care of ahead of time for them. But now put those two things together. Put those two things together and consider this. One of the most commonly stated reasons that people reject God's invitation through Jesus to enter the kingdom of God today is the utter simplicity of the invitation. They just can't get over the fact of the freeness of the invitation. Many people I've heard, they're just like, that's, that's way too easy. I just got to have faith. That's it. I, it doesn't cost me anything. I don't have to do anything to get entrance into this kingdom. It doesn't make sense. And so they reject it because of that reason. Oh, no, there's got to be something else. There's got to be something else I got to do. Keller, again, says it this way. The kingdom of God, though, isn't a restaurant that you have to pay money to eat. Nor is it a potluck supper where you have to prepare your own food and bring it. This is far better than anything you could pay for. And it's completely prepared for you. It has to be received. Book of Isaiah, chapter 55. Uh, Isaiah says it this way. Come. All you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, your food, or your, sorry, your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Here's what I'm getting at. The, the whole point of the invitation through Jesus into God's kingdom is that it's free. It's free. It's something that has already been made ready for you in order for you just to receive. It means you can't earn it, you can't merit it in any way, because if you could, if there was some way that we could earn the invitation, then it was pointless for God to send Jesus, because why? If it was possible for us to just get it together, he didn't need to send Jesus. Clearly, even God knew we can't earn it. We need somebody to earn it for us. But as we move into this final point, we're going to see that this is yet another parable in part, not all of it, but a part of this parable is confronting the religious leaders, listen, confronting the good church folk of Jesus' day and their pious, prideful view of themselves. 
And while perhaps the majority of us, we, we hear about the idea of a free invitation to a banquet, something that doesn't cost us anything, that sounds like a dream come true. If you've spent a lifetime trying to earn God's favor and earn his blessing, it sounds more like a nightmare. And it sounds like an insult. And it makes me wonder if part of these lame excuses the invited guests give for refusing this master's invitation to the banquet has nothing to do with the fact that they don't want to attend the banquet and everything to do with the fact that they simply refuse the invitation because they're resentful of the idea that their behavior, their contribution, their achievements had nothing to do with their getting an invitation. Everything was already done. And we need to consider this seriously because now, and now we know the kingdom of God is something we want to be a part of. We, we want to be a part of that. But I think what we need to see clearly that Jesus is pointing out here is that God's invitation, it is predicated on, it is, it is necessary that we understand the humble acceptance of the work of another that has already been completed on our behalf. Entry into this banquet, acceptance to this banquet is predicated on humble acceptance of one who's made everything ready for us. And if it's not, if it's not humbly accepted, we could actually end up rejecting the invitation to the banquet because we presumptuously assume that our external behavior somehow earns us acceptance into the banquet, and it doesn't doesn't earn us acceptance into the banquet. Jesus says humble acceptance of the invitation is the only way to enjoy the banquet. That's the only way any of us gets to enjoy the banquet. And verse 24, if you look down there, reminds us strongly, rejecting the, by rejecting the invitation, we're not denied entry into the kingdom by God. We deny entry into the kingdom ourselves. God's invitation to us, what he's inviting us to is a banquet. It's a banquet and a banquet where everything has already been prepared for us. We don't add to it. We don't contribute to it in any way. We're just invited to come. Last thing I want to look at quickly with you is the who of God's invitation. Who's invited to this banquet? Who's, who's getting in? Now, hopefully you remember from when we began this morning, I was talking about how the whole context of this parable that Jesus gives is he's out for dinner at this prominent Pharisee's home. And already in the first 11 verses of chapter 14, Jesus is poking and pressing at different ideas of pride and humility and what it might look like in different contexts that would have been familiar for these Pharisees that he's sitting around at the table. But then it's in verse 12, Jesus goes on to say directly to the host, Directly to the guy throwing this party, verse 12, listen, he says, Then Jesus said to the host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite, or we said, do not continually invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, two things I want to point out going on here. First of all, in verses 1 to 4, again, we didn't read this part, but what's just happened there is Jesus has just healed someone on the Sabbath, healed someone, it says, who was suffering with dropsy. 
Now, this person, because of his illness that Jesus healed, would have been excluded. He would have been considered ceremonially unclean by these pious religious leaders because of his illness. He's someone that certainly would have been included in that that list of people gave of people who were, uh, uh, Jesus said, you should invite these kind of people. He would have been included in that group. Secondly, we don't pick up on it in our 21st century context here, but in verse 15, now look with me there. In response to what Jesus just said, someone else responds to him in verse 15 by saying this, Blessed, oh sorry, when, when one of those at the table heard Jesus say this, he said, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Now that sounds good to us. We're like, yeah, yeah, blessed. And yet what we don't realize is that this guy's not agreeing with Jesus. He's not agreeing with Jesus. He's basically trying to ease the tension in the room because of what Jesus said, and he's trying to change the subject, actually. This is the closest we have to an ancient Near Eastern equivalent of, hey, how about those Canucks this year, hey? That's, that's the sense of what he's doing by saying this, actually. And on top of that, it's a statement also filled with pride. He's actually trying to contradict what Jesus just said about who should be invited to these banquets and luncheons. Because, first of all, clearly, he assumes that everyone at this table is undoubtedly going. He's like, of course we're going. Blessed is everyone who's going to show up at that banquet like, like us. Aren't we blessed? And he assumes they're going solely because they're Israelites. They are religious leaders. They're pious Jews. That's why he thinks they're going. And so it's actually in response to this pushback that Jesus now pushes back even harder and then now tells this parable of the great banquet. But as you keep reading now past the various excuses of those who were invited and then said, no, 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 I can't make it. Verse 21 and following, look now. Servant comes back, he reports, no, these guys aren't coming. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys, of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in. Compel them, some of your translations will say, to come in so that my house will be full. Now, a question you, maybe you ask when you read this, uh, it struck me as I was reading it and it came out even as I was talking this week with some people about it. question that first comes out, this second group that's brought in, it doesn't really feel very nice, and, and, and they don't really feel like they're actually invited or special. It kind of feels like an afterthought. These guys I invited didn't want to come. Uh, you want to come? Yeah, yeah, you're invited. And it seems like it doesn't make the guests that come after feel very special, does it? Well, the answer to that, very simply, is this, that although the Bible is clear, yes, the Jews, they are God's chosen people, they will be invited first. The Bible is also clear. You see this from beginning to the end of Scripture. All are invited to the kingdom banquet from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. All are invited. And actually, it was the job of those who were first invited to extend that invitation to the others. That was their job to do this. The problem was the Jews neglected their calling and they came to understand the kingdom of God as something that was only about themselves. And so they no longer extended the invitation to others. They thought, this is just about us. In the immediate context of this story, most commentators agree, this, this first group that's brought in out in the streets and the alleys, that represents the outcasts in Israeli, Israelite society. 
those who would have been uh, denied access into worship in the temple. That's what this first group represents. The second group, from the roads and the country lanes, represents the Gentiles. He's talking about the bringing in of the nations here. Those people who these religious leaders would have thought, there's no way God would invite these people in. Broader context of church history, we see basically from the the book of Acts onward, comes to understand the guests invited first to refuse the invitation that came to be understood as the people of Israel. Uh, We read this in John chapter 1. He says, Jesus, he came unto his own, but they received him not. So those who were invited first to refuse the invitation came to be seen as the people of Israel. Those who were formerly not invited, who became invited, became to understand as the Gentiles. Came to, uh, it's us. We are all those who were invited, who were, not, who were formerly excluded. And the first thing Jesus wanted to teach about the kingdom, then and now, in this last part of the parable, is this. First of all, the invitation of God's kingdom is much broader than we think. The invitation of God's kingdom is much broader than we think and maybe even than we'd like it to be. Let me show you what I mean. The religious leaders believed they were invited to the banquet simply because they were pious Jews who followed the law as best they could. That's why they were invited. They would almost as if they would say, well, we don't really even need an invitation. Of course, we're accepted. We're definitely accepted. I mean, look at me. Look at my record here. I've got perfect church attendance. I've got all these Bible memory pins. I've got this huge stack of Chris Tomlin CDs. Of course, I'm accepted into the kingdom. And then, consequently, because they had that belief, they also began to assume all kinds of other people were not or could not be invited into the kingdom, solely due to their social status, their health, their ethnicity, or their morality. They had all kinds of reasons that they said, well, this person... This uh, uh, beggar sitting on the street, there's no way we can accept them into the kingdom. Are you gonna, this guy's going to be serving communion at the front? No. This person, this, this woman who's had multiple relationships with men, she's a prostitute, what, what she's going to come up and lead the worship? Of course she's excluded from the kingdom. They had all these different reasons about why these people couldn't be included in the invitation. But for you and I today, although we might say, we, have, we know, we know that's wrong. Everyone's invited. Even though we say we know that, every time we choose not to serve someone that God's put in our path, every time we choose not to reach out, every time we do those things and we do it because of the same reasons, we limit the size of the door of God's kingdom. Or at least we try to. We try to decide for God who it's permissible to invite. And all the while in Jesus' story, he just keeps saying, no, no, my invitation goes out as widely and broadly as I choose to send it. And if you read Jesus' commission, beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 1-8, he sends it out as broadly as the ends of the earth. That's how broadly he sends out his invitation. And if he sends out his invitation that broadly, shouldn't we also? And in looking at the response of those the master extends this invitation to, after those who first invited refused to come, I think we see the second thing Jesus wants to teach us about the kingdom. What's the response? Well, we don't, we don't hear it. We just see it. They just come in. They just accept the invitation. They come in and fill the place. 
That's what happens when the invitation is extended, which I think shows us something pretty powerful about the giving of the invitation to the kingdom to those who we believed were unworthy or who we thought would be unwilling. It shows us those who know they're unworthy to be invited come into the kingdom gladly, and they come in in droves when they're simply extended the invitation. Consider in your own life, who's the person Who's the, what, what's that home, what's that community of people that you have never bothered to pray for or that you've given up praying for because you just assumed it would be a waste of time? That person's not going to want to hear about Jesus. It's not, it's not that I don't want them to know, but you know, that, the, that, that community of people, they don't, they don't want to hear about Jesus, don't they? Aren't we deciding for God, who should be invited by doing that? We're putting those same social constructs that the religious leaders have put on. I mean, I even know as a church for a number of years, we, we would talk about uh, the hardness of the ground of our surrounding neighborhood and community, resistance to the gospel, and it is hard. There is resistance. As I look back now, I wonder if we didn't limit some of our engagement to our surrounding community for years because we just believed they'd be resistant. So... You know, let's kind of not spend too much time engaging because, you know what, it's, it's a hard place. And we've limited our engagement for years because of that. So the call here is this. Don't give up praying. Don't give up praying. Be willing to risk that invitation to someone who you see as unwilling or unworthy. Just extend the invitation and leave the results of that invitation up to the master of the banquet. As we close this morning, I see Jesus giving us individually and collectively as a church at least three challenges from this parable, and I want to close with this. First of all, maybe this is the first time you've heard about the kingdom of God in a way that didn't sound super lame. It didn't sound boring. It sounded like this is the first time you've heard about the kingdom of God and it sounded like something you'd actually want to be a part of. But now you're stuck behind the unworthiness piece, but I'm not worthy to be there. I've always been told I'm not worthy. Jesus promised to you this morning is that no matter what your past or your present, you're invited. All are invited. And humble acceptance of the one who earned your invitation is all that's needed to secure your access to the banquet. You're invited. Secondly, maybe you're here this morning, you grew up in church all your life, but as you listen this morning, you're beginning to feel some of the first waves of self-doubt, wondering if you truly have accepted the invitation or if you've been relying on your performance to earn your way into the banquet. If that's you, I believe the call of Jesus' parable here to you is to surrender your pride, to lay down all of your religious efforts before him and realize, I, I can't earn my way in. I just want to humbly accept your earning of my invitation. Because his call always goes out to those who don't deserve. I mean, the story here, he's talking about people who knew they wouldn't be accepted. And what he's describing in that is everybody. That's all of us, none of us come in because we deserve to come in finally maybe you do know that you are trusting in the one who made your invitation possible that's awesome 
I hope you are. But you know that you've been restricting the reach of your invitation because you've been deciding for God who is or is not worthy or who will or will not accept it. If that's where you're at this morning, would you commit today to try to do it differently? By God's grace, to try today to to go out as broadly and widely, as, as recklessly and uncomfortably as the Master sends you with the invitation to His banquet? Would you just extend the invitation and trust Him to do what He's going to do with it and not decide beforehand what the response will be? Because here's the thing, now we're the ones, we're the servants that God sends the invitation through. We're the ones bringing out the invitation, saying, it's prepared, it's ready. Come on in. It's an invitation to a kingdom, yes, but we always need to remember this, the, the invitation to this kingdom is a kingdom that's like a banquet. It's a party. It's a celebration. Simply understood that the kingdom is just the place where the true king rules. It's the place where the true king sits in power and rules over the kingdom. And hear me. Listen. Where he rules, where the true king rules, there's endless celebrating, feasting, joy, happiness. Where he rules, all the things that are broken and wrong with this world right now and his good creation will one day be restored and fixed. And where he rules, even everything that's good, and beautiful right now about that same creation will one day be 10,000 times better than anything we experience right now. That's what we've been invited to. And that's what God calls us to invite others to as well. May you know the transforming power of the joy of being accepted and invited into that banquet. And may many others know that same transforming, unexpected joy through your extension of the invitation everywhere the Master sends you.